What's going on, good people? Welcome to the new episode of the Paul Rivera podcast. I got to admit, I am super excited, man. I've had NBA All-Stars, NBA champions, team owners, uh, film producers, directors, Hollywood agents. I've had it. You name it. I've maybe never been more excited than I am for this show. Um, we'll get, not to put any pressure on my guests, but we'll get into the reason why. And I think those of you that know me, those of you that are fans of the show will, will very quickly understand why I'm so excited about the show. Um, I want to introduce a man of many titles, but the most important one is a very good friend of mine, CEO of Lawrence Family Enterprises, Carlton McCoy. Carlton, what's up, Yo, bro? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, man. I know you're super busy, man. For, for those people that may not know, and, and I'm going to sit up here in front a little bit like like I'm almighty knowledgeable of the Lawrence family enterprises. Like you didn't just explain it to me five minutes before we started recording the show. <laughs> um, can you give the people a rundown on exactly what the Lawrence family enterprise consists of? Yeah, of course. So, um, so I was hired by Galen Lawrence. Um, he is... I think quietly one of the most interesting and open-minded and forward-thinking businessmen in America. And I was hired to run Height Cellar, which is um, you know, one of the more you know, legendary pioneering wineries in Napa Valley. And within months, we saw an opportunity to sort of expand and build a bigger enterprise here and a lot bigger um, investment opportunities. So we, it sort of grew organically, sort of one investment and then another and another. And before we know it now, we've got, you know, seven, um, seven independently run wineries in the Napa Valley that, um, that we're operating and harvesting for about 520 planted acres um, and a sales and marketing uh, negotiation company uh, that we oversee. So, and what's unique about it is we, you know, it was important to us. We looked at how a lot of the other big companies are run, whether it's you know, the Rothschilds in, in, in Bordeaux and how they run their companies or other families in, in the U.S. And we, we didn't necessarily like how everyone sort of just, they look for efficiencies and everything's like jumbled together into like one big conglomerate. So we wanted to make sure that every winery had its own personality and the wine stayed unique and different and artisanal and run like small family wineries. So we made sure everything was separate. And as you can imagine, it's like the exact opposite you know, strategy that most companies take that was looking for efficiencies, like how do I save money, you know, strip payroll. And we looked at it as like, it's really easy to count money you save, but it's much harder to count money that you're not making, right? Mm -hmm. It's like accountants love to show you the money they save, but that's sometimes that little savings cost you like this much, right? And like brand value. So we run everything separately and I oversee all of them, although I don't personally hands-on run any of them, which is the way it's, it's set up. Got it. Um, you know, I normally start at the beginning, but I think it's only right. Um, obviously, the fires. I want to I want to talk about that and ask you, you know, massive fires in Napa. How's everyone yeah. doing over there? You personally, the company, just Napa as a whole. Yeah, I mean, the, the fires are sort of like insult to injury this year. It's like we were just sort of starting to like climb our way out of like the pandemic hole like everybody else in, in the world. And it's like, you get that wake up call at two o'clock in the morning. It's like, all right, there's a fire in this venue. And you're like, shit. You know what I mean? So those went on pretty much on and off for almost a month. And it, it, it I mean, it wreaked havoc on the Valley. Uh, hundreds of homes burned down, you know, over a dozen wineries burned down. Um, it was bad. But I mean, the crazy thing about fire is once it's gone, it's gone. And now it's like, you know, 
flames are gone, smoke's gone, and it's just like picking up the pieces. But um, I mean, we're fortunate, like, no, nobody from our team was hurt or injured. Uh, a couple people lost their homes, but we were able to jump in and make sure they had somewhere to stay and make sure they were taken care of. But um, it's you just get used to like dealing with stuff. So it's like, all right, there was like about 30 minutes when you're just like, like shit, really? And then it's like, all right, jump into action. <laughs> And yeah. like, all right, it's another thing, right? Just deal with it. But um, so we're fortunate. All, all in all, we're fortunate. No one was hurt. That's amazing. And then not even speaking, you know, specific to your wineries. Um, one thing that I was, you know, really surprised to learn, which actually makes sense when you think about it, when there's fires, it's not necessarily just the fire damage. The smoke is can do just as much damage as it relates to the grapes, correct? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the what was unique this year was that the, the fires came in the middle of August, which is like, it's like prime ripening time, right? So everything is on the vine. Um, and I wouldn't say everything. I mean, we've, we harvested about 20% of our normal production roughly before the fire came. But once the smoke came, we just made a decision not to pick anymore. So once the smoke comes in the vineyard, like it's, it's a, you just don't know, and it's not worth it to risk the brand to make wine that has any smoke flavor or smoke taint whatsoever. It is a massive loss. I mean, I'm talking like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of wine left in the vine. Um, and you know, you sort of like, sometimes it's easier when you know, you have no other choice, right? It's like when, when you're like, I could do this or I could do this, like it's a little bit more difficult. But when you wake up and you look out and you can't even see like more than two row, rows in, you're like, like nature made the decision. And now I'm on the phone with the insurance company. And like, that's it. You just call mm. it, you know. But so, by the way, no, no disrespect to any of the insurance companies. That's not how anyone wants to start their day on the phone with no. the insurance company. I don't care no, what field like, you're in. <laughs> no, you're like, you're like you, you got the robe on still, like coffee in hand, like on the phone with like a claims adjuster. You know what I mean? It's like not... It's not a good morning. (laughs) So Carlton, talk to me. Let's go back to the beginning. You know, Mm -hmm. young Carlton, where are you from? Uh, Where where were you raised? Talk to me a little bit about that. So so I was born and raised in in D.C., uh, more specifically Southeast D.C. Um, And I was born in 84. So when I was really growing up, it was sort of the early 90s, which was um, sort of the heyday of like the crack epidemic in D.C., um, and as you know, Chappelle, who's also spent, you know, he spent a lot of his life living in DC. He says, he's like the crack bomb went off. There's a bunch of zombies walking around DC. You know what I mean? Cause like DC used to be, you know, one of the most, you know, forward thinking black communities in America. And within like five years, it just turned into a wasteland. So, um, I grew up during that era, uh, and everything that came with that. And, um, I was really fortunate when, um, when I was 17, I was, I'd already dropped out of high school like twice. I was on like my third high school. Um, and I took a, a home ec class when I was in high school to get like extra credits just so I can try to graduate from high school. And I knew how to cook cause I was raised by my grandmother. Uh, both of my, my parents, just like everyone else in my neighborhood, uh, they were, they were drug addicts out doing their own thing. I mean, I, I didn't know anybody in my neighborhood whose parents weren't on drugs everybody right so i was raised by my grandmother and so i learned how to cook so i knew it was like i i do okay in the class right so i went and i took the class and in walks this guy named ian barkley and um he was a, a black pastry chef and i didn't know one that you can make a living cooking i didn't know it was a career and i definitely never seen a black chef so he came in he sort of noticed that i knew what i was doing 
introduced me to this scholarship program where you could, you could actually win a scholarship to go to culinary school from winning cooking competitions. So he sort of took me under his wing and trained me to like classic French recipes. And I won the, the full scholarship to the CIA. Oh, wow. Up in Hyde Park, New York. So the same school, uh, Mario Corbone and those guys went to. Um, and I went through that program. Um, you know, I took it very, very seriously. It was pretty much, I was the only person in my family to ever go to college. Which by the way, yeah. Carlton, isn't, isn't yeah. a Mickey Mouse school by any stretch. It's like, no, that's, that's the real deal. No, it's intense. I mean, I went from, you know, being in DC with like Tim's on and cornrows down, you know, halfway down my back. Two weeks later, I'm in like the Hudson Valley had to cut my hair. The Tims are back in the closet in Southeast <laughs> DC. It's like, you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, color CIA is like military school. It's very intense. You know, you gotta be super disciplined. Um, and I took it very seriously. Um, and you know, um, I graduated, I moved to New York city. I wanted to be a chef and I, I, I you know, worked in all the great kitchens and I staged at restaurant Danielle, uh, Jean Georges. Uh, I mean, like, all the, I mean, Alain Ducasse had his restaurant there at the time I was staging there. But then when it came time to get a job, you know, what they were quoting me hourly, I'm like, why, why did I go to college if you're going to pay me $13 an hour? You know what I mean? To live in Manhattan? Like, no, I could have stayed in D.C. and worked at Home Depot or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same hourly. Yeah. So I, 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 I talked to my family. I was like, there's no way I went through, you know, everything I've gone through to get this education, this skill set to work for, you know, 12, $13 an hour. So I moved to the dining room where you make, let's just say a lot more than that. And I remember I was working in this old server says to me, he says, Carlton, you know what? If you want to make real money in this business, you got to learn wine. He says, Carlton, the steak, you can only charge so much for the steak, right? He goes, what's the most expensive <laughs> thing on the menu? And it was like a hundred dollars steak. He's like, you can't sell them more than a hundred dollars. He's like, so, you know, you're going to get $20 on that table. He goes, but if you learn wine, you can sell them a $500 bottle of wine. I didn't even know they made bottles of wine $500. Mm. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you do the math. So um, I, you know, I started studying wine. And then my, during that time, my grandmother passed away, and, um, which made me buckle down even more in my career and really sort of focus. And then I moved back to D.C. to help my sister and her kids because um, they were struggling. And I met this guy who was this young, like punk rock kid who was also studying for, um, for his master sommelier exam. He introduced me to, um, what a master sommelier was. And he's like, look, you're a smart kid. You work hard. I think you can do this. And I just like foolishly, like believed him and just started going down the path. Like without even thinking about it for me, it was all like dollars and cents. Cause at that point I was, you know, helping to raise my nieces. I was paying for everything, helping my sister. And it was like, all right, I can make more money. I'm in like, and it really wasn't. Everyone has this story of like this epiphany wine. It's like, oh, no, no, like, I, you know, this guy gave me this, you know, 71 DRC Latash and it changed my life. Like for me, it was a paycheck. And if I can make more money, I was going to do it. Like, it, and at that point, we, you know, we were struggling. It's like, if they had told me you can make five times more money fixing cars, I would have been under somebody's car fixing the <laughs> transmission. You know what I mean? Right. Right. He's like, this is the path. And I like committed my life to it like seven days a week somewhere between four to eight hours a day, I was like in the books and I like progressed really, really fast. So, um, I moved out to Aspen and took my master's my exam and, um, passed the exam when I was 28, which is, I think maybe the second youngest in the world. So I, I want, I want to spend a little bit of time on the master sommelier 
exam and the process. I don't think people, because I damn sure didn't to you explain it sure, to sure. you. Like, like the, the amount of work and studying yeah. it takes and then get to what the actual test is. Yeah, so there's, there's four examinations. There's an introductory, a certified, an advanced level, and a master's. And the first two exams are um, a, a little bit easier. And when it gets really, really serious at the third exam, and but the advanced and the, in, advanced simile and the master simile exam, you essentially have three parts. There's a, a theory portion where it's you sit down. There's a verbal. They just essentially grill you with questions for like an hour and a half, like four, you know, four master simile sitting across from me on a table, and it's all verbal. And then the second part is a mock service exam. So you've got 45 minutes to an hour where you've got to go around and you actually act like you're the Somalian. They are the guests. And they just mm -hmm. like put you through the ring or the worst case scenario. They ask you the hardest questions you can possibly. And you've got to actually, you know, you've got to perform at a certain level that they deem like proper. And then last is the blind tasting, which is my, I, which is my favorite part I love is they give you three white wines, three red wines, and they give you 25 minutes to tell the vintage um, the grape, the region, and the quality level. And you got to- <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. They give you six wines, three white, mm -hmm. three red, and 25 minutes, and you, and you don't know what the wines are, where they're from, you don't know anything. Nothing. And in 25 minutes, and mm -hmm. mind you, it can be from anywhere in the world. Yeah, any grape, any vintage, anything. Holy shit. But to me, I thought that was the most fun. I know it sounds like people go crazy over, over like blind tasting. It like crushes people. I thought it was so much fun because I like the challenge of it. You know, to me, there's one thing to sit in a book, sit, sit and study a book, right? And you like read and you learn. And that's, that's incredible, right? But to, to apply it. And I just love the challenge of it. It's the hardest part of the exam. That's why I loved it. And I got really good at it. And I really loved doing it. So the first time I took the exam, Let's put it this way. It typically takes people about 10 years from the first exam to pass to the fourth. If they pass, it's got like a 3% pass rate to find the master's exam. So, you know, it's, if, if you do make it all the way through, it's like 10 years. And I did it in five. And like I, I and I'm not saying that braggadociously because my personal life suffered, but I pretty much, <laughs> I didn't do anything. Like P, like I, I, from the moment they taught me about what the master solo exam was, and I was, I was about to turn 23 when I first learned what it was. And so I passed, I didn't do anything. Like I study almost every day, unless I was like going to travel. And every time I had a vacation, it was going to a wine region. And I didn't care about a girlfriend or a, a hobby. I never had a hobby, nothing. I don't even remember what I did with my life. It was like five years unless I was like studying. And I, that was it. Cause it was like, it's like, this is the shot, right? It's like, you know, it's like, I mean, you, you see that when you're around, you know, elite athletes where that's their shot and everything else can fall apart. But as long as like that part is on track, like they're happy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause it gives, it's, it's their purpose. It becomes like a part of their identity. So I read somewhere Carlton and, and correct me if my numbers are wrong, that there are roughly 300 master sommeliers in the United States. I think there's about 250 in the world now, about 255, I think, in the world. Wow. And then I read, which is astonishing, if, I, if this is even close to right, that there's only three African-American master psalms in the U.S. Is that correct? In the world. In the world? There's in three, the all three? Yeah, in all three in the U.S. There's three African-American master psalms in the world, and yeah. all three are in the U.S. I mean, dumb question, but do you know the other two? No, I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean... 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> it's a small claim. Uh, no, yeah, it's it's you know we it's 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 interesting you bring that up because you know obviously you know you've got pandemic, then you've got race and class reckoning happening in the middle of that. You know, before the fires, I was like slap in the middle of what was a big reckoning of being inclusive of people of color in the wine industry. And, you know, the master sommelier organization, the quartermaster, it's because it's the top, you know, of the pyramid that always happens. You become the target for it. And they became the target is like the example of, look, you've got what, 2%, you know, of anyone with African-American heritage in your organization. What they don't realize is that's actually pretty high <laughs> compared to some other organization who have zero, you know, yeah. but, yeah. you know, I, the organization did an incredible job of saying, you know what, you're right. And, and they're taking some pretty incredible actions, but a lot of other great things came out of that as well. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I mean, you know, it's like, it's not an industry that has done a great job of marketing to, to people of color of, of not just African-American, any Latin American, anyone, but you know, yep. sort of white male and female yep. and, um, it's changing real fast, which, which I'm very proud of. So. Carlton, let me ask you, like, I'll bring it, like, I'll, I'll bring it close to home. I didn't know what a master sommelier or sommelier was until I was 35 years old, yeah. right? So, so for kids like me from the Lower East Side or kids like you from DC or kids like Mav from Akron, you know, how can we be Psalms if we don't even know the profession 100%. exists? It's always, it, it's always a dual situation. It's not just race, it's class as well. Yeah, for and sure. We always focus in on the race and that is one part of it. It's also class as well where, you know, a lot of times in this country, we've sort of deemed certain career paths as like unattainable for certain people. And in a sense, it almost is because, you know, you know, we talk about the, the and we discuss the residual effects of some of the systemic racism that's been placed in the legislature. A big part of it is um, separating people in society and from social circles. And, and what you're exposed to, whether it be through, you know, through the restaurants that you go to or the type of restaurants you go to uh, or just who you're hanging out with and what you're talking about. It's, you know, social media definitely, I think, sort of democratize a little bit of that. But really what it comes down to it is like, you know, that's a big part of why I try to do everything I can to be as, as vocal and public as I can about where I came from. Um, it was really difficult for me at a long time for, for a long time. I, I hid where I was from and a big part of it because it, it wasn't, it wasn't okay to talk about it. It wasn't okay for it to be in public and people look down on you. And now I felt that I achieved enough where I can sort of say like, yeah, I'm from here and I'm already, I've already proved my, my abilities. Right. And, and through that and trying to find different platforms to bring awareness to that. So like, you know, the little PR and a little Carlton can look on social media like, yeah, look, if that dude can do it. He's from here. Like I can do it. And that helps to bring the awareness. Um, you know, another part of it is not just color. We talk about classes. Like I never saw really until I started like hanging out with like you and Matt and so forth, like seeing people who were successful in business that weren't always just suited up and trying to speak interview, you know, yep. jargon. Yeah. everywhere you know what i mean like we we learned you know there was the way we spoke and then there was you spoke in interview right mm -hmm. and, and sure. every, every and even any black businessman that i met before 
they, they were just in permanent interview all the time. And it was almost like they completely neglected, you know, how they were raised and their culture and, and, and beliefs. Part of that was probably because it wasn't accepted in their world either. But, you know, it's great to see people, you know, people in our communities say like, yeah, like I can, I can be intelligent. I can be capable. I can actually be forward thinking and redefine industries and still be the person that I am. And I think that makes, you know, the youth from places where we're from even more comfortable believing that they can do it. Right. Um, and the second is now we have to open up paths, which is, a, which is a, you know, a big focus of mine as well. It's so interesting you say that. I've never told anyone this. I had this conversation with Mav. When, when we first started our first business uh, in robot, um, we'd have all these big meetings with like really big Fortune 100 companies and CEOs and CMOs. And we'd go to their headquarters and we'd get suited and booted. And I'd be like, this ain't really like my thing. Like, and my joke to Mav would always be like, I can't out Harvard, Harvard. You know what I'm saying? I'll never do that thing, right? I'm like... But I can dress like me. I can throw on a sport coat with a Guns N' Roses tee underneath with some clean forces and look very professional and yeah. still be able to talk my thing. And, and I think what, I don't want to speak for Mav, what I realized is we're in the room because we've earned it and it's yeah. okay to be ourselves as long as we're professional about it and carry ourselves in a certain way. And I think a lot of young professionals, I think this is what you were saying, a lot of young professionals when you're starting, you feel like, hey, I need to be a real certain way to be accepted in this room or whatnot. And we don't realize that what makes us different is it's kind of what makes us really special in that room. You know, do you, yeah, do you feel For sure. No, no, and, and I, but I also think it's like, you got to judge the situation because, you know, as, as far as we've come, we're very far from where we need to be. For sure. um, so I'm not advising, you know, if, you know, you're jumping into your first interview that you show up with some J's and a hoodie on, you know, maybe like, Get in the door first, judge the situation <laughs> if that's culturally acceptable. Because unfortunately, you know, it's like it's a survival skill. You know, I talk to my therapists all the time is like being able to if you're in America, if you're of any ethnicity other than being sort of like just white Christian. And if you're from poverty, like you, you, you have to learn how to be a shapeshifter as a survival technique. Right. It's like, how do I, you know, if my goal is to be able to feed my family and move up in that, that corporate ladder, like sometimes I got to project myself as maybe something I'm not to be able to succeed. And that's, you know, that's okay. You know, for a short time, you can't do it forever. You're going insane. But yeah. what I can tell you is like, when I got this job, you know, when I, when I met with, with Galen, when I you know, met with David Tonkin, who's a, a, a good friend and an advisor of his as well, you know, I was wearing tennis shoes and a hoodie and we were talking and we were talking about the wine business and we were talking about Heights Cellar and what we could do. And he didn't never judge me. That. He didn't say, well, I can't hire this guy because he's, you know, he's wearing this. But, you know, do I do I wear a suit to work a lot of days? Most days. Yeah. But it's more about reverence for this great estate than it is like what I wear. I still if it's him and I hanging out, I wear what I want to wear and he doesn't judge me, you know, which is a lot about. You know him as a business person and how you know and, and the same people that you all do business with the more that we can project ourselves in that way the more these kids can look and, and see themselves in that position i think it's super important for sure i want to talk a little bit about the roots fund yeah and i know you're so, really excited so i, I tell you the real this is the real story behind the roots and most people don't know they get the the flowery the the verbiage we put on the website <laughs> but legit is when this all this this uh, controversy came out with the court of master sommeliers. I was pretty public about 
speaking out against the idea of like trying to cancel this organization and like, cause you know, I mean, look, we saw it for a bit there where it was just sort of like anyone who, who didn't fit the, within the criteria of what we deemed acceptable in a company was like, all right, shut that company down. I'm not sure it's always the best approach. It's a case by case thing, but in my opinion, I, I, I saw what it did for my life and how it's changed my family and how it's going to change my family's kids, you know what I mean? Like it, it completely, my opportunities through the quartermaster ways broke what was a very long strand of a generational curse of poverty. My family will be fine forever now. So why would I go out of my way to destroy this organization instead of molding it and changing it to be what we needed it to be, which is much more difficult and it takes a lot of work. So I was pretty outspoken about like it being silly. And um, somebody called me out and like, you know, sent me a message. Was like, we need to talk. I think it was the, the the message I got. You know <laughs> Which I mean? is never good, by the way. That's never no, good. No, and not and not from a black woman. When a black woman sends you a message that says we need to talk. You're never like, good. Yeah, yeah. So I got on the phone with 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 this person, and we talked it out. And I I told her why, and I stood by it, and she understood. And I says, you know, every you know, let's let's try to do this thing. And we started talking more about what was needed in the industry. And really, what it came down to it is we saw that one to your point, P was. People from where we come from don't even know what a sommelier is. They don't know that it's a career path and they don't understand that it can be very lucrative. The wine business is, a, I mean, I mean, billions and billions of dollars in this country and we don't have a stake in it yet. And that's changed very quickly. The second was education, right? Because I don't, I don't believe in putting somebody in a position where they're not going to succeed. So scholarship efforts to give them, you know, the education they need or setting them up from internships. And then lastly is helping with job placement. And why that's so important is, you know, most people who get jobs typically get referred. We know that, right? We post a job or we call around and fill a position, you know, before it's posted a lot of times, you know what I mean? Before we even advertise for it. So we try to use the influence we have and the people and the connections we have, just like other people do, and to try to get them in, in roles where they can be successful. So when you come to the Napa Valley and you're in a, 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 one of the great wine sellers of, of the world, you go in and you're going to see some black and brown faces in there as, as you should. Right. So Roots Run is really built around, you know, just that. And it was, it was incredible to see this year, we were able to get a few people into like big time internships with major wineries in Napa. And, you know, I had heart to hearts with each one of them just saying, look, you know, like you need to understand the value of what you have. You don't get to play by the rules of everyone else there on the internship that's drinking and partying. You're serious. You put your head down and you know, you, you, you know, you need to like set the bar and they just absolutely crushed it. And it was just incredible to see like what happened to me in high school when I was in that, that home ec class, someone walking in and saying, Hey, look, you can do this and put me on a path. Me being able to do that for them is like, I know the impact that it has on the family more so than probably even they know at this point, you know? So, uh, it's been all amazing to see the growth we've had just in one year and then starting to see people actually sort of like just go on and just throwing cash in the donations. Just like, we love what you're doing keep going. Um, so, so some incredible things came out of all this, you know, that's dope. Speaking of impact, I know one thing you and I have spent countless nights drinking great wine, compliments of you, of course, um, you know, it was about how proud we are of like our teams and, and the businesses we've been able to build and run and the responsibility that comes with that. Um, this pandemic has tested leadership and companies in a way yeah. we've never even fathomed, right? Um, 
I know you're really proud of, of how you and your team were able to manage through the pandemic today. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and a big decision that made news for you guys and how you handled the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we saw everything that was going down just like everybody else. And I, I flew out to um, Arkansas to meet with, with, with the family that owns our, our, our companies. Uh, and we spent a couple of days talking about, all right, this thing's coming down the pipeline. We don't know if it's going to be a month, two months. We thought two months was the max, you know, to be honest with you, probably should have been. But, um, and, um, you know, first thing we said was, look, you know, we, we spent so much time building this team you know, literally like cherry picking every employee. We can't lay these people off, you know, um, because everything that we're building, we're, we're moving faster than we can recruit at this point. And so every person we get, we got to keep them, you know? And so we made that decision very quickly, but it became, okay, well, you know, now you've, you've turned on the tap, but there's no more water coming in. So you're just draining it. Right. So <laughs> how are we going to, you know, keep something coming in? So when I came back, we met with the whole team. And again, the first thing is really important to me as a leader is to make sure that people feel safe and secure. So the first thing I let the media on says, no one's being laid off. You're going to get paid your full wage, but this is what I need you to do. I, you know, I need you to show your appreciation and how I need you to do that is I need you to create new revenue producing ideas. And I said, every day I want so everyone to send me one idea. Right. And at that point, probably had about 50 employees like clockwork every day. And I said, you know, no idea is a bad idea, right? Like as crazy as it seems, just send it. I said, just send it directly to me. So one else can judge you. You know what I mean? And, you know, we, I mean, the, I mean, the ideas that came up were exceptional. I'm talking about not just like things that we just put into place immediately, which some of them we were able to, and we're actually going to like far exceed our direct sales budget for the year. Um, but like stuff that like we can implement for all of our estates going forward. So in a sense, like when you look at the residual down the line, we're going to actually make money from, from this situation. Um, but you know, during that time we were building new companies, even in the middle of pandemics and like poaching employees from other companies and just like building, everyone thought we were insane. But the way we looked at it is even if this thing lasts for a year, we still have to operate in a year. And we saw an opportunity where a lot of these other employers in the Napa Valley and companies just without even thinking about just dropped everybody, you know, we could pick up all these really talented people that again, no longer had their commitments to those companies. And we were able to, and we built, we built an incredible lineup um, of employees during that time. I, I, I wanna, before we get into the fun stuff of, of tasting some wine, um, I want to ask you, you know, when I met you, you were uh, employed in Aspen, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if we want to talk about the employer, but employed in Aspen. And, and to me and to anyone else in the outside looking in, you had the dream job. You were in Aspen. <laughs> <laughs> all your friends would come through during the high season. Um, but in all seriousness, I want to talk about because I think there's something so remarkable about you being at the top of your game and deciding to challenge yourself and take on a new challenge. You could have stood in your previous employer and had yeah. the time of your life and made all the money and did all that stuff. Talk a little bit about your decision, less even about like your, your previous employer and your new employer, just career-wise. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's very valid. I mean, I um, the family I was working with there, it, I mean, that job, if you ask anyone in the wine industry, you'd say it's, it's the greatest civilian position probably in the world. Like it is, you know, you only work maybe nine months out of the year, make incredible money. Um, 
get to build the team that you want. There's no wine buying budget. You buy whatever you want. You drink whatever you want. You're connecting with and mingling with some of the wealthiest people in the world. And um, there's a number of reasons why it's an exceptional position. But, you know, I got to the point where I was, I was 34 and I'd already been doing that for eight years. You know what I mean? So I started so young that, you know, I had, I was already having all these really sort of long-term positions where I just felt that there was a lot more that I could do. Not that that wasn't enough, but, you know, and I'll tell you, you know, meeting people like you, like Mav, like Danny, like a number of my other mentors that, you know, and people that I work around, you know, you, you sort of like quietly inspire people by just what you do. Right. And I think people discount that people are watching right all the time. And the more you move up, the more people are watching and, and you inspire people directly by just getting after it and succeeding and growing. So, you know, as I, you know, I'm around you guys, you're constantly sort of, I'd say injected with this energy of like th- forward thinking and pushing and within that, the bounds of what I was doing in Aspen, you can only do so much. You know, I'd already had some conversations with Mav, like aspirations that I had entrepreneurially on, on, on my own businesses, which I'm still pursuing the ownership, um, the, the family I work for are super supportive. Um, it was like, what's the next step? And I started noticing like more people that I were interacting with in Aspen that had become good friends and mentors going, so what's the next step? And I was feeling it. You, you get that itch and it's like, I need... I need something else that's going to intellectually stimulate me and drive me, right? It's like you, you got to, there's a feeling when you got out of bed and your feet touch the ground, like a level of excitement. And I, and I, I have it now and I was starting to lose it in Aspen. And I think part of it, cause it, and this is on me, like fluffing myself, but I, I was really good at what I did there to the point I had it down to a system where I didn't actually have to do much more. Like I had it down. And when I moved here, I felt you know, the moment I arrived that I was not, I was not, um, I didn't have the skill set to do this and it scared me. and I liked it. You know, mm-hmm. it was sort of like, you're, you've got about 80% of the skills. There's a 20 you don't have. And I remember when I got off of this job, I was sitting down with, with the owner Galen and I said, look, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm going to tell you a list of skills I do not have to run your winery. Why this is a bad idea. <laughs> Just imagine that. <laughs> We're, 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 you know, we're sitting and he's offering me a position as CEO of Heights Cellar. And I'm telling them why it's a bad idea. You should not offer me this job. These are the things I cannot do. And I literally went down a list. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he went back and he says, great. This, this, and he, he pretty much went down a list of things. He started with, I, I love and respect that you started with that because I can appreciate that. But these are the things I need you to do. And this is why. And it made absolute sense. And I was scared. I was scared shitless. I went home. And I talked to my, my, my girlfriend at the time and I talked to her about it. And I talked to a bunch of other people. And again, they were in the same position that you were saying, which was like, you got this great job. Why would you leave this? And it's hard to put into words that feeling you have when you are, um, when you are challenged in the best kind of way. And if you're the type of person that always wants to be challenged, you can't live not being, or you almost go into depression. Like you have to be driven. And this position, I, you know, I, the moment I arrived, it was just, hit the ground running. The great thing is the owner was like, look, this is your baby. You know, I'm here to be your investor, but you're running this thing. And he got on his plane and he left. And I was left at Height Cellar. I'd never run a winery before in my life, never even worked at one. There's no manual that says, this is how you run a winery. 
and I was left with this whole team and you walk into the boardroom and they're looking at you. They know that you have never worked in a winery and that you don't know how to run a winery. And you've probably got, when you walk into that boardroom, you've got about 10 minutes to either convince them that this thing is going to go in the right way or they walk out going, I should probably start finding another job. You know what I mean? So I knew that first 10 minutes was going to be um, really impactful for the future of my career here and the company. And, you know, it's, it's been what I thought it was going to be plus. And, you know, and, and I'm, I, I feel like I made the, the, the right move. But with that said, I also opened up other opportunities for young Somalis there, which is, I mean, you know, this as you move up, you always want to bring people up with you. Um, sure. Carlton, one of the things I've always respected about you, besides your knowledge and wealth of knowledge in wine and your great taste in music, um, which is a different conversation for a different day, is you've always been, I was actually talking to our friend Chelsea about this recently, yeah. a couple of days ago. And we were saying that you can come and bring the most exquisite wine anyone's ever tasted. It's a $5,000 bottle. And then you'll follow that up with a $50 bottle, right? For you, it's never about like the biggest ticket or the most yeah. expensive bottle. And, and, I, and I feel like you do that even more so now that you're, you know, in your current role, when you were running Heights specifically, where you're like, hey, this is some great wine we have at Heights, but also you should try this as well. I've never felt like you were the guy that was ever pushing an agenda, a brand, a certain price point. Where's that come from for you? Well, I, you know, one thing I, I learned from, I think, people that I try to surround myself with is to be... Um, want to be infinitely passionate about your subject matter or your company or whatever it is. And for me, it, the food and beverage industry, like saved my life uh, is I've spent my entire adult life enveloped in it every moment of it. And I like sharing it with people like in a very genuine way. And I, you know, I looked at the wine industry and I saw a lot of people who were trying to push the agenda of formality, I think a bit too much. Right. And it was always like stiff and, you know, like that just what it wasn't who I was as a person. Like I love people. I grew up in a big black family. I was a, I'm a mixed kid. I was the only my sister and I were the lightest people within miles. And we just grew up <laughs> in this massive family and I was always around people. So I love having fun with people. I like sharing what I'm passionate with with people. And I know that like even though, you know, I oversee Heights Cellar, um, if I'm the guy who's walking in with only a bottle of Hytel at some point, it, you know, you're pushing, it, it does look like you're pushing your agenda. You always get this ulterior motive. People don't trust you. For me, I always believe that if the more people I can turn on to great wine, the industry is winning, right? Right. It's like the rising tide lifts all ships, right? So, you know, I, I like this wine, but guess what? I'm going to bring you a, a bottle of my friend's wine who's also making great wine, could be even better than ours, and I'm going to share it with you, right? Because it, it's about, when you talk about the wine, wine and the way we share it, I look at it the same way as my grandmother, who is, she was like the black mother Teresa in the neighborhood. You know, she, the door was always open. We cooked dinner and there were people coming in from the neighborhood. There was always a plate, like you need a plate. It's like, we just want to share what we have with other people. It was the way I was raised. And that's how I relate to people. I could never be that guy who's like, okay, this is the winery I, I run or I own. And this is what I'm going to walk around with. I'm just kind of sell you all these cases. I'd rather, you know, sell you somebody else's wine and just give you one of our bottles. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it, because it's, it's all going to come back around. And for me, like when you look at like what makes, I think life rich, it's like connecting with people. 
that inspire you, that motivate you, have similar values, and, and also can relate to things like with passion the way you do, right? Like I, I struggle spending a lot of time around a lot of people in the wine industry because I think they geek out too much. They're way too serious. They forget to take pleasure and just drink wine. You know what I mean? Like if I go to dinner tonight, I don't want to sit around talking to you about vine training methods and, you know, and, and, you know, and like, I don't, I don't want to talk. I just want to drink. You know what I mean? Let's talk about something else. Let's listen to some music or something, you know, like let's just drink and enjoy it. And I think a lot of people have a problem doing that. And it's a competitive edge being able to just relax in this industry. You know what I mean? It's not a normal thing. I think that's super dope. And, and you, you put your money where your mouth is and you live it every day. I remember we were in Napa, shit, what seems like five years ago, but I guess it was just last year uh, for a mutual friend of ours, Danny's uh, bachelor party. Yeah. And obviously anyone that goes to Napa wants to go to French Laundry and whatnot. And you curated the whole trip and you were like, yeah, we're going to do that but I'm going to take you to get the best burger in town first. Oh, yeah. right? like, I was like, Oh shit. Like, and it damn sure was the best burger in town. No, and you end up and everybody ends up having a great time. I mean, that's what yeah. it's about, man. It's like what's unique American versus European. Like Americans are not super formal people. We're not, I mean, everybody who's in this nation for the most part, let's call it 98% are typically from like some sort of working class, something right or upper middle class. I mean, it's not a lot of like royalty in this country, right? It's a very small percentage of people who even have that kind of wealth. So we don't have that image of like a relating like wine to, to formality, right? I mean, it's like, we're, that's just not who we are as a people. So like forcing all the time, it, make, it makes me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even like, I don't like where like, like going to dinner in a suit and drinking a bottle of wine to me is like the most uncomfortable thing. Like I want to be in my jeans, drinking great wine, listening to great music. And I think, look, the American dining scene is like turned into that. Like you see it in restaurants in, in every city now. It's like you can go and get great food or a great omakase, like a baller bottle of wine and you're listening to hip hop or, you know, or you listen to whatever and everyone's cash and they're just enjoying, right? Because it's like we, Americans, we have to, I think we need to take a better angle of like being true to who we are and, and, and being okay with you know, not being uber formal. I mean, I was just in LA and you look at like, you know, John and Vinny, I did an event with them. And they're like the example of that. Super talented, both like very intellectual cooks, but they know how to like not overthink it and just make really delicious food. And they've got an incredible wine program. And it's like, they've got this vibe that's like, it's very LA and that's very American. And for me, I think um, the, the more American wine consumers and diners, can just embrace that and not feel like this pressure to be like, you know, I know I got to suit up if I'm going to drink that Grand Cru Burgundy. You know what I mean? Like that's to me, that's, that's what I, that's the energy I want to bring to the wine industry is like, we can make not so incredible wines, some of the best wines in the world. And we're going to do this and maybe next to it, have a cold, Bud like, you know what I mean? And (laughs) and, you know what I mean? Like being jeans and a t-shirt and like, that's okay. Right. I don't have to, I don't have to interact with this thing the way you do, like the way they do. And it's also, I think what people of color, you know, bring to the, the industry as well, because I mean, I'm not going to speak for every black person, every Latino person. We typically are very lively people. We want to have fun. We're loud, we're boisterous, a lot of energy. And that's not what you associate with luxury wine a lot of times. So, you know, having more of us in the industry is only going to make it a better place. I think. It's actually dope. One of my, as I bring my glasses here, one of my favorite dining experiences last year was me, Mav and Danny went to Shuko 
Yeah. We were drinking incredible Burgundy, listening to Nipsey, you know. That's and it. I was like, I was like, man, what's better than this? You know, what's, what's better than this? Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, and, and the problem is that people used to make you feel guilty for taking pleasure in that experience. You know what I'm saying? And you shouldn't, right? Like, like that, that, like that's what it's about. That's literally what the whole thing is about. It's like, it's like creating moments with people. You know, when we had the opportunity to take uh, Danny and Matt, it was for Matt's birthday, to, Bur- to Burgundy. And, you know, watching like, I mean, we were from Matt's birthday, but I think Danny enjoyed it even more. Looking at Danny's face, Danny refused to spit out any of the wine. So we're going to like five <laughs> different wineries in like one day. So like by, by winery four, like he's toasted by having the time of his life. And look, we're like in jeans and a hoodie at like Domaine Russo, one of the, you know, rarest wines in the world. And it's like, everybody's okay with that, right? Like that's a memory made and that's how we wanted to experience it. Even the winemaker was like, this is cool. You know what I mean? Cause like everyone else comes there, they're suited up and it's like very serious. You know, we come in and like, like they appreciated it because we were like very comfortable in our own skin. I love it. So I told people at the beginning that I was extremely excited about this show. <laughs> and now they have the visual. I have four empty wine glasses in front of me. You were kind enough to send me four bottles of wine. Yeah. You want to talk about the four bottles you sent me? Yeah. And how so should I pour? What, what should I pour first? Well, there's, 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 there's two white wines, two, two red wines. You can pour all four of them. I really try not to, to geek out too much when we talk about wine with people and even with education, because I think part of it is like the idea of having like wine authorities to me is very scary. Uh, and it's because they almost have too much influence. Like, you know, wine is very intimidating for a number of reasons. One, I think it's really marketed as a luxury beverage too often when it's really not always. But the other thing is like, you know, it's not as a, as a country, we're all very new to like drinking wine, right? It's only in the last like generation and a half where like the masses were drinking wine. So we're just warming up to it. So I always like to just like, people just gotta, they've gotta try everything. The problem is that we, you know, because it's so intimidating, we look for like our sound bites and like the 10 brands that everybody wants to drink and they forget like the wine world is vast and super diverse. So, I, I, I always just try to lay out a lot of wines and just have people drink them. And it's like, whatever you like, you like. And I, I, people shouldn't be ashamed to drink whatever it is they like, right? And if it's something I don't like to drink, well, guess what? It doesn't matter. I'm not drinking it. You know what I mean? And you have some ways and wine writers and wine journalists who are pretty much trying to tell people what they should like. And I think it's the wrong path, right? I think it's about giving people guidance to help you know them describe what they like so they can get it more often. Because again, when you look at the goal, which is to have everybody in America drinking wine, like I want a bottle on every table in America, right? That's going to help the industry thrive. And everybody- Carlton for president. Carlton for president 2020. I would never make it. No one would ever. (laughs) I I get a few votes. I think I get a few votes. You got mine. You got like five or six to Mark Ham for sure. I can get a couple of votes, at least. (laughs) No, so what we did here was we have two of uh, the wines we make at Height Cellar. Okay. Um, Those are these two. Yeah, the Quartz Creek Chardonnay uh, from Oak Knoll, and we have um, the Trailside Cabernet Sauvignon from Rutherford. What we try to do is we we pick two wines that are very different styles in the Napa Valley. So Height Cellar, I mean, you've had the wines before. They we we always produce what is like the old heritage style of Napa Valley wines, which tend to be a little bit lighter, 
a little bit fresher. They're not as, as rich and, and, and full body. Because that's, that's the way we've been making wine since 1958. We never really changed like, that structure. And it's what we like. We like a little bit more acid. We like wines that are a little bit lighter and fresher. Because frankly, I like to drink. I need to be able to drink a whole bottle of wine. I don't want to just drink a glass. So what we did was we, we, we chose um, another Napa Valley Chardonnay and another, another Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon that are what we call like the modern Napa Valley wines. So the Chardonnay here is what they like call like these like buttery, oaky, richer styles of Chardonnay, higher in alcohol, just like it's big. And the Cabernet is sort of the same thing where it's like it's riper, it's sweeter, richer, a lot of oak. And what you do is you try them side by side. And I always do, I, I try to explain wines like that and just let people like go after them. So you can start with the, the Heights Chardonnay. And, and yeah, I mean, people always like, again, you know, you watch these guys at the tastings and they try to like, you know, the swirl and the swishing around. And, and there's a purpose for it, right? You're aerating the wine. But it's not a, it's not a requirement to like enjoying the wine. You know what I mean? I'm not spitting mine out, Carlton. I gotta drive home. I got one more meeting. I gotta drive home with this. <laughs> Nonstop meetings. No, but so all right. So you notice that you got acid. There's freshness. The beautiful thing about acid is that's what keeps you salivating, and it makes uh, it induces hunger, right? So it makes you salivate. It makes you want to eat more, and then you drink it. You go back and forth, and that's really the interplay between acid and food, right? It works really, really well together. But then you have the second one. And you can already smell it. It already it has that that like buttery, toasty, oh, sweet. Wow. Yeah. yeah, we call it. This is we call this cougar juice. Wow. <laughs> we. This is the kind of water. It's like these. Uh, they're like. <laughs> it's like these middle aged like women who just they just love this wine, which is good on them, man. They, look, if they if they're enjoying themselves. <laughs> You're there in dry, but oh shit, he said cougar juice. I'm done. <laughs> when I was in Aspen, I couldn't keep this wine in stock. Like it's sweet, it's oh, rich. These two, these two wines I just tasted couldn't be more different. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same vintage, it's made in the same region, everything. It's it's just a completely different philosophy. But it's a winemaking choice. You know what I mean? Like you choose that. And again, I always tell people there's, it's not one is better than the other. I think it's the wrong approach. It's, it, it, you shouldn't impose your opinions on other people. If someone asks, you should also still be careful because if someone likes something, if someone likes this wine, which a lot of people like this wine, let them drink it. You know what I mean? Like, is it, is it, is this really what this is about? It's like getting everybody to like what you like. You know what I mean? Like, I have to be very honest with you. I don't really like very much trap music. I just never got into it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm old school. I listen to, 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 to hip hop in a very small amount of rap, but like trap, I just never got down with it. I, it just, unless I'm in a, like in a spinning class, for some reason, it makes sense. But it doesn't mean there's car, anything wrong with it. It's just not correct. your cup of tea. And right. if you enjoy, listen to it, you should listen to that, right? Like that's the whole point is the music space. You, you take pleasure at it. If you like this type of Chardonnay, you should drink it and drink a whole lot of it. And I'm sure the producer's going to love getting those depletions, but <laughs> we, that's not what we like to drink. So we don't make that. And that's okay. Like the, we believe that it's like room for everybody, right? When you look at America is like per capita, highest consumption of wine. And we still have a very small percentage of the population that even drinks wine. 
So like sky's the limit as to like where we can get. And there's like room for everybody, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, again, if I'm in somebody's house and they open a bottle and pour it, I'm drinking it, right? I would never go to the store and buy a bottle. You know, right, <laughs> like right, I just right, right. This actually was the first outside of, you know, being a buyer for the restaurant. The first time I personally had a bottle of this purchased ever in my wow. life, this style of Chardonnay. <laughs> it's just not what I drink. But again, a lot of people love a style of wine. All right. So we'll go to the, the uh, Cabernet is the same thing. So okay. heights, same thing. You're going to smell it and you taste it. it. It's got a freshness to it. You know, it's, it's got more of those, like we call like secondary notes. It's not just all fruit. This tastes very familiar. I've had a lot of this Carlton. <laughs> yeah. Tastes like home. It's got acid. It's got freshness, red fruited. Like you want like roasted duck, you know, you want, you know, rack of lamb, you know, you want to be going back and forth with it. And then you taste this wine, which, you know, it's a very popular brand. And you can just smell this right away. It, it, it smells like, like dessert wine. It's like port. Mm. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> oh, man. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> now, again, same vintage. These grapes, because I know where they source from mainly, are within a mile of each other. And it's a very, but very you're different saying, You're saying these grapes are a mile away from these grapes. I can tell you, we produce a couple thousand cases of this wine. They produce probably about a, a quarter million cases of this wine. Holy and they're, they're almost, uh, the wine we produce is only about 30% more expensive. And wow. Yeah, very different wine. But again, this style of wine is probably a little bit more popular. It's like sweeter, it's richer. It's for like the generation that, you know, they, they like drinking bourbon and Manhattans and then this, and it's in the same vein. <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, that's not a knock on them. That's what they like to drink. And a lot right. of it, what I can tell you is like, as America is a new wine drinking nation and we're catching them real fast, people want more obvious wines when they first start drinking, right? They want, you know, if they're drinking whites, they want big oaky whites. If they want reds, they want sweet, really big, rich reds. People tend to start that way. And the more they drink, the more they travel the world, they drink wines from all over the world. They start having, you know, a desire for wines that are a little bit lighter, more nuanced, instead of being like big in your face. You know what I mean? Like we always try to compare like wines in their, their styles, like music, right? It's like getting like a wine in its perfect balance. is like listening to music. Like if the music is actually too loud, you can barely hear it. And if it's too low, you can barely hear it. But you hit that perfect volume and it's like you hear every note. That's like, mm -hmm. to me, where a wine is like great, you know? And we try to nail that. We don't want it to be too light so that it's just sort of like, you know, you just bang it back, right? I mean, we love those kind of wines as well, but as far as like a great ageable wine, it's not the, the, the goal. But we also don't want something that's like so massive and rich. It's like, you drink a glass of this and it's like black, you're like blacking out <laughs> at the table. You know what I mean? Like, and also you like to have food. Like you look, all right, so you're a Shuko, but you can't drink this last wine with gray sashimi. You know what I mean? You could barely have it with a steak. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, there's some balance there. But again, like if people are drinking it, like I want them to drink it. I want them to drink I'd rather them drink this than the Manhattan. You know what I mean? That's fair. Let me ask you this. I don't know if you remember, we were at one of our favorite restaurants in Aspen. And um, I mean, we must've been a table of like, 
it might have been like 12, 16, 18 people. And the waitress comes and she brings me the wine list. And I'm like, you don't pass the ball to freaking, I don't know who else. When you have LeBron James on the other wing, I'm yeah. like, that ball headed guy right there is a LeBron James of wine. Give him the list. Yeah. I say, I say that to say there's, there aren't many things more intimidating than, than a wine list at a restaurant. And, and if you're on a date with a young lady and, you know, and you picked a good restaurant, you were lucky enough to get a reservation and get in and you got your paper up and you can pay for dinner and um, any advice you could give to the average guy that's looking to drink a good wine, yeah. you know, not, just separate from even brand, what should they be looking for when they're looking sure, at Sure, sure. I'll tell you, it's, it's, there's only a couple wine lists in the world I actually like really enjoy looking at. Um, you know, there's a, a restaurant in Paris called La Tour d'Argent, and it's, they've got one of the biggest wine collections in the world. Wine list is this big. It's incredible. It overlooks um, the backside of Notre Dame. It's like a stunning restaurant. It's, it's legendary, but it's huge, and it's incredible seeing this big collection. But the reality is, like, you're there to have dinner with your, your friends, your family, your guests. Like, you don't want to be peeling around a wine list. And then more importantly, if you don't really know what you're looking like, you know, looking at it, it's super stressful. So I always recommend this. We have technology now. Like I tell people all the time, if you like a wine, take a picture of it, you know, have, um, you know, a little file in your, in your, your photos with all the wines you like to drink and whatever you're in the mood for, you open it. And if it's a similarly worth the salt, you go, give me something like this for this price point. Thank you. And give them the list. <laughs> and that's it. Right. I, I mean, I, I started telling my regulars when I was asking that, like, look, as you travel, so we don't have to do this dance, right? Because right, right, there's right. this thing at the, the wine list, and it's very awkward, right? The whole point of like, especially if you're a sommelier, it's hospitality, right? It's like, I want you to get the wine you want in a comfortable price, you know, that you're comfortable with and not be all stressed out. So I tell them, you travel, something you like, take a picture of it and just show it to me and give me an idea of what you want to spend. Again, the, the dance for price point, can be a little tough sometimes, especially if you're in an awkward situation. It's open list, point at the price point, something like there, something like this, and that's it. And if you're in a good restaurant, the SOM knows what they're doing, they can take that pretty easily. You know what I mean? To figure it out. Gotcha. And, and gotcha. why I say that is what you can get away from is like wine is incredibly difficult to understand. And there's hundreds of thousands of producers. There's no way as a normal wine drinker, you're ever going to know them all. It's impossible, right? Most of us don't even know them all, right? So what's, what's important is you get something you like to drink and, and it's within the, you know, why the price point is important is because you'll have those sums that'll take you, you know, when I was a young sum, I used to do that. Uh, you know, it's like someone's like mortgaging their house by the time that check comes, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? But it's like, give them the price, give them what you like to drink and then you're good. You know what I mean? And then, and then, and then if you want a second bottle, challenge a song, show me something else that's in that same vein, similar price point. And then, and if you like that, take a picture. So you'll learn something new. One thing I think that people get too caught up in is, you know, they get really comfortable with the brands that they know because they're comfortable with it. It's like, if you're in a right, in a great restaurant and there's someone you trust, like tell them to give you something you never had before. Like, that's the beautiful thing about wine is like, you know, the whole world opened up to me once I started to travel the world. I mean, no one in my family really traveled the world. So when I had the first opportunity, I started doing it. It was just like eye-opening one, looking at how people live their lives. I was like, shit, how can we know about this? And, and then two, how they interact with wine. People don't, it's not like they're just grabbing the same bottle every time. 
they're trying new stuff all the time. So I tell people like, get out of your comfort zone and just try stuff. Like what's the worst going to happen? Like you're going to drink it. You're going to get a buzz. You don't like it. Don't buy it again. <laughs> right, right. I like, remember, I obviously trust you implicitly. Um, and I remember recently for my birthday, um, I told you, Hey, you know what? I'm having a couple of friends together. You know, I'd love to, you know, if you can curate a wine, you know, selection for me. And you were like, no problem. Yeah. What are you going to spend and what are you going to do? Is it dinner? Are you just hanging out? Are you this? And I was like, I told you what it was. I told you budget. You're like, I got it. And you sent me an array of bottles. What goes into your thinking when you're curating a list for someone? You know, it, it was crazy. It's like I working in restaurants for so many years. Um, you don't always remember people's names. Right? It's almost impossible. But I remember their face and I always remember what they drank. And it was really funny. I was back in Aspen and I was there for a couple of days, like dealing with this real estate thing. And my buddy texted me. He's like, hey, look, you know, this guest is in town. They're celebrating their, you know, their, um, um, you know, his 70th birthday and they want to have dinner. I was like, absolutely. So we met up, we had a glass of wine, we're talking. And they started telling this story and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we're in Paris. I remember the name of the restaurant where they went on their honeymoon. It was long before I was even born, this older couple. I remember the wine that they had. I remember the vintage, everything, right? It's like when you take interest in something, like it, you, you remember it, right? So I, I typically, especially people that are pretty close to me, I can remember what everyone's wine preference is. So yeah. I'm looking at that. I remember I also asked you who, who was going to be there. Yep. Because it's one thing to like go, great, I'm going to get wines, just P likes. But then I go, okay, who's going to be there? Okay. Well, I know what that guy likes, that guy likes. Okay. So I know what to put in the mix. Mm -hmm. And then you're looking for like diversity. So I'm not just going to go, okay, well, great. Let me just give them a bunch of burgundy and that's it. Like you got to throw some other things in there that I know like they fit within the same vein. And it's like, you're going to be comfortable with like 80% of this and the other 20, you probably haven't seen before. So you can like, you know, oh shit, what is that? And then when I do that, I always try to make it a little bit cheaper than what you would normally spend. So you're a little more comfortable. And more importantly, it's an insurance plan. If you don't like it, you're not that bad, <laughs> right? So you're looking like, all right, well, we didn't spend that much money for it. You know what I'm saying? But you always, I, I'm always thinking about that. It's like when I, you know, I, I still cook a lot. I still, I mean, in my heart, I'll always be a cook. When I have people over for dinner, you know, I try to make sure like everybody has something they're going to drink. They're going to like, you know what I mean? And I, I never do formal dinners. You know, I cook and I try to do everything family style and I just open bottles and I put them on the table, get the music going. It's like, that gets the vibe going. You can just grab and pour, grab and pour. And I tell people all the time, like when you have a dinner party, don't just choose like a white and a red. You know what I mean? It's like boring. Just put one bottle of each. Right. And, and if you got 10 bottles, have 10 different bottles and everyone's trying everything. And it's the way people learn. So you try, no, I don't like that. Give me that one. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's the way I grew up eating. It wasn't wine on the table. It was probably like, you know, I don't know, Crown or Hennessy and like <laughs> beer, or MD 2020. But it was like this yeah. stuff and like you're picking it. And, and that's the way I like to sort of interact with wine. But you got to have, try to have something for everybody. And then try to have a small amount where it's like, no one's ever tried this before. It's not that expensive. Let's just, let's, let's give it a shot. I got to say this. I got to say you, you achieved um, your goal for my birthday. Everyone there from Mav to Kevin Love to Danny to Chelsea 
had a moment when they were like, oh, you got that bottle? I took all the credit for a call. And saying, of course I got that bottle. It's me, it's P, you know? Like, you, know how many, you know how many sellers I've done where like Rich got texting me, he's like, great job, but I took all the credit for it. I mean, it's like massive seller filled with wine. They wouldn't even know where to buy it, but it's like, oh yeah, I got all this, all this Tetris. Yeah, I got it. For sure. Let me ask, are there, before I let you out of here, a couple more questions. Are there any rules to wine? Meaning, if I'm having fish, it should be this. If I'm having lamb, it should be that. Are there any rules anyone should consider when dining? I, I think it's not so much rules. It's like a few things you sort of want to steer away from. Like, and, and some of them are, are pretty obvious. You know, like, if you, again, if you're going to a sushi restaurant, like, you don't want to drink, like, big red wines. Like, it's just going to destroy the fish. And, and it makes the wine taste bad as well. You know, that's a, that's a big one. It's like when you look at, like, the weight of what you're eating, what you're drinking. Um, you know, the second is like temperature matters a lot. Like white wines, you don't want to be like ice cold, right? I mean, you got nowhere else to store. Most people don't have a wine cooler in their house. If you do, that's ideal. You know what I mean? Like I like almost all my wines somewhere around 50 degrees, whites and reds. And around 55, zero? Yeah. Um, so I like my reds really cool. And I like my whites a little bit warmer than just coming out of the fridge. Champagne's different. Champagne, as ice cold as I can get it, I want it ice cold. I want almost... They don't like to hear this in champagne, but I almost want to like crystal, ice crystals on the top. I love my champagne <laughs> ice cold. You know what I mean? But like, you know, like white burgundies and things like that, you want to serve them, you know, a, a closer to 50. You know what I mean? And then if you do have a decanter, if you don't, I mean, a pitcher works as a decanter, try to give wines air. When you air out a wine, you're just going to get more aromatics and more flavor from it, right? Realistically. That's why we use bigger glasses. You just want to put air into it because when you put a wine in a bottle and it's in there for like years, it's sort of like smother, right? And you got to get air into it for it to just sort of like release all those aromatics, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to, but it but it definitely helps. Are there um, rules? To, are there rules to decanting? Are there rules? Things no, you should so decant and shouldn't. Well, one thing you want to look at is, is you can decant almost any wine. If a wine is really really old, you want to be careful because one, it's going to have a lot of sediment. The sediment is like those crusties you see in the bottle in old wines that you don't want to drink, right? It's like the like particulars and follows in the, in the wine. Um, and you want to be really careful when you're when you're pouring that. But also, when red wines are older, they're much more delicate. Like old Burgundy, you just never decant. It's too delicate aromatically. You know, Cabernets after about thirty years, you know, you want to be careful with decanting because they'll also get really delicate and, and, and start to break down. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's not a lot of rules. I mean, I just think that the problem with people consuming wine a lot of times is they're so afraid they're going to do the wrong thing, you know, or say the wrong thing. And, you know, it, 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 I, unfortunately, I think, you know, some ways are the sort of our own worst enemy in that. We sort of inherited this culture of formality and like pretension where it's almost like shot us in the foot. It, it gave you this sense of rarity and elitism, you know, if you will. But it also scares a lot of people away from wine in fear that they're going to look like idiots. Where it's like there aren't, there isn't a wrong thing to do. Like if you're drinking wine, like you're winning. You know what I mean? There are there are moments in my life. It's like if I'm on vacation with with LeBron, and he goes to the gym and I go to the gym. He's like, "What are you working on today?" I'm like, "Whatever you're working on." Like that's yeah. just, you know me what I'm doing. Right? <laughs> it's I like look recently, at you, look at me. Like I'm yeah, just yeah, doing yeah. What are, that's a silly question, right? Um, <laughs> You know, I recently was uh, spent Mav's birthday with Mav um, mm -hmm. and Nas was with us. And we went out on the golf course with Stout and Draymond and and Nas was like, what are we listening to? I'm like, I don't know. What are we listening to? Like, you're not. You know what I'm saying? Your like, name is Nas. <laughs> yeah. 
Like your name right? is Nas. <laughs> and, and, and not to gas you, I put you in the same category. Anytime I'm with you, I'm like, no, what are we drinking, right? You know what surprised me about you? Bubbles. Yeah. It surprised me that you're like, no, no, we're going we're gonna to get started with some bubbles. That, talk to me about that a little bit. Like that, that really surprised me. I, I, I went through a phase in my life where I didn't drink a lot of bubbles. And I, it was because as a young sommelier, we drink a lot of champagne because you're partying a lot more. You know, again, I got into this industry really young. I was 23 when I started studying as a sommelier. So we go out after work and that was like all we were drinking was champagne. You know what I mean? Like we go to the late night, you know, restaurants and you just buy champagne. And I just get to the point I was sort of burnt out in it. But then when I got to Aspen, which is a huge party town, I sort of like refound it and it just became like part of a thing. Like to me, I think started, first of all, I, I always, I hate champagne flutes. I, you know, never drink champagne out of champagne flute. Um, it's completely unnecessary. Mm. I always drink champagne out of like a white wine glass because if you're drinking great champagne, they've put the same time and energy into like making that wine aromatic um, and, 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 and the flavor profile incredibly complex as they have in like a white burgundy. So why smother the wine? Um, but I love ice cold champagne to start the evening because it's sort of just like it's like if it's like taking a cold shower, you know what I mean? Like freshens everything <laughs> up. You know what I mean? Especially if you've been traveling, like you get off the plane, you head straight to dinner, like you're a little crusty from the plane, you're a little tired, you just like you know, it's like that that feeling when you right when you're a little like rusty, it's like it just like you know, you get the cold champagne, you pop, and it's like, all right, I'm here, like I'm good now. You know what I mean? And, and you don't need very much. Give me like three ounces of just ice cold champagne, you know, and, and it gives me something to sip on while I'm selecting the next bottle. Mm, you know what I mean? I love it. I, love, I want yeah. that on my tombstone. Give me something to sip on while I'm selecting my next bottle, baby. Yes. <laughs> Carlton, last question before I get you out of here. There is a 19-year-old, 20-year-old Carlton or 20-year-old PR listening or watching this, this show right now that maybe didn't even know what a psalm or a master psalm was and their interest is really peaked, right? If we've done our job, hopefully that is the case. There's at least one person. What advice do you give to them if they're like, man, you know what? That's a career I'd wanna learn about potentially following. What do they do right from listening to this episode? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, first of all, you know, I always look and like pinch myself sometimes. Like, I feel like, and, and you probably, I mean, you're probably in the same boat and a lot of people you surround yourself with where you go. Like, it doesn't seem that long ago when I was there because when you're, when you commit your life to something, you're so focused, time goes so fast. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 36. And like, I vividly remember being like 17, 18 years old, like driving up to like the CIA, like it, it goes so fast. So I remember that feeling of like, where you just sort of like, you just don't know how to do it. You know what I mean? Like, like I, ah, it looks cool, but like, how do you even do that? And so I, I to me, I pinch myself. I even do this for a living. It's pretty nuts, right? And I still try to explain it to my family, and they don't, they don't get it. Um, so, <laughs> well, you get um, you get paid to do what? Yeah, exactly. like, to, like, to sell alcohol. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I'll, I'll send my family bottles of wine. And then it's like, ew, like, I don't want to, <laughs> like, they just, it's like, I've been able to convert so many people to drinking wine. My family still, like, they're just like, no. Um, and, you know, what I'd say is in, like, anything like this, like, there's a whole, it's like 80% of the boring stuff that you're never going to see on TV or the guy on the dining room floor with the nice suit and the pocket square will never tell you about. I, I'd say I spent more years studying books 
and traveling, taking notes, asking questions that I did anything else. And really it's starting with like, and no one wants to ever talk about it. It's like the boring part of just literally just studying books, right? Studying books, memorizing. And then when you come to the age of, of, of drinking, like go work in a restaurant and, and I don't care how low a position, go to the restaurant that is known for the greatest wine program wherever you live. And, you know, the way I did it was I offered, I said, look, my shift doesn't stop my server. Servers start late, right? My shift doesn't start till four. I can come here at 10 o'clock in the morning if you want. I'll sweep the floor in the cellar. I'll move cases. Whatever you need mm-hmm. me to do, I'm going to do it. And I, and I work for free. And I did that for a long time before even the guy said, okay, great. Let's open this bottle of wine. Let's talk about it. Because he wanted to see how committed I was to not just the glamour of being a sommelier and like having a nice suit on, but like the grunt work. Are you going to are you going to read the massive book this big and then come in and load cases around for three hours? You know what I mean? Are you going to do the grunt work or you just want, you just want to see what you see on TV? You know what I mean? Right. right. And so I'd say like, you know, study first and then, you know, find a restaurant where you can just screech your way in. And guess what? If there's no position in the dining room, you go to that guy, you go, I'm committed to this. I'm going to go wash dishes until you come back and tell me there's a position, right? Like mm. there has to be some hustle in there where you're just like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get this thing. It's like, how bad do you want it? And I'd say that that mentality has served me more and given me more direction to be able to move up the ladder very, very fast. You know, people who are ambitious recognize people who are hungry and are willing to do the work. People don't want to, a lot of people don't want to work anymore, right? They, they, the entitlement level is very high. And, you know, if you're not, if you're not willing to put in 12 to 16 hours a day for a long time and then go home, shower, and then open the book and study and then wake up and then open the book again, you know what I mean? And study and then go back and put it in. Like, it's probably not going to work for you. You know what I mean? And, but that's how anything that is a high, you know, it takes a high level of achievement. That's what it takes. Um, but it's very fulfilling it, to me. I think food and beverage change in, in traveling the world you know, changed my perspective on the world, changed me as a person. Um, and it made me like a better, it made me a better person with my family. Um, it gave me an opportunity to now create new opportunities for people. And I think ultimately that's the goal is like, you keep climbing the ladder, but the higher you get up, like there's more people you're like pulling up behind you. You know what I mean? Carlton, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I think, you know, when Jay-Z was on his 444 tour and he was in Cleveland, um, in between songs, he told the crowd, you know, he said something like, you know, being in the house that LeBron James built. And he was like, I look out at the crowd and, you know, none of you might be able to be LeBron James. He's like, but all of you could be Rich Paul, right? Yeah, and, 100%. And, and he meant it as the utmost compliment to Rich Paul, right? That's super um, thoughtful. It makes right? a lot but, of sense. But, but I look at that and, and I feel the same way about you, right? It's like, hey. Anyone listening to this, you guys probably can't be Jay-Z, right? But you can be Carlton McCoy, right? No, There's no 100%. competitive advantage to being seven foot. This, this is yeah. hard work, hustle, and passion. Do you feel that? Yeah, I remember I, I, listened, I listened to um, you know, a podcast you did with Mario Carbone, somebody I have an enormous amount of respect for, you know, everyone involved in those, in those, uh, in those restaurants that they have. And he, and, he, and he talked about how, you know, what he does, there is no, like, genetic inclination right. to be a great chef. Right. I don't believe there is any genetic inclination where you can just be, you know, you're born to be a massive sway. Right. It's like, you know, there is a thing in some people where they wake up and every day they go, well, whatever I did yesterday, I'm going to try to do it better. And it's hard for some people to understand, but it is, 
you know, you either going to learn that you're going to live that way, or you're just not going to. And some people make a decision not to, and it, it is a decision, right? I tell people every day, like you have a decision every day when you wake up, it's like, are you going to give a shit or you're not going to give a shit? And there's some days when I don't give a shit and those days are few and far between. I can't afford not to, um, you know, but for the most part, it's like, you know, once you start up that ladder, it's, it's an incredible feeling climbing and you don't want to stop climbing, right? Once you start climbing ladder, you don't stop in the middle of the ladder. You know, even if you can't mm. see the top, you just keep going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like you just don't know how to stop. And like, you know, we talk about the concept of like, you know, what drive is and like what pushes people. And the reality is like an empty stomach, a hungry mouth is like one of the greatest motivators in the world. You know, take away that safety net, right? And I, the people I went to culinary school with, the people I work with in restaurants, like they had no clue where I came from and like what I was dealing with. And they dealt with the situation. And I'm sure you, I mean, you've dealt with this in business every day. And P is like the people you're dealing with, like if, if things go wrong, they can go back and move home, right? Like, yeah. you know, like to me, there was no, it was no, I was no moving home. There was nowhere back to move to. So it was like, if you felt like you're on the streets, so it was like, it wasn't an option. Like you just like, you don't even, you know, it's like, you don't even think for a second, like maybe I'm just going to give, I'm going to stop. Yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> This yeah, is plan I'm A, B, and C. This is all this the This is it. This is yeah. it. This is the one yeah. thing. So, you know, I love that. And, and it's why you, me, the people you surround yourself with, love being surrounded with people who are driven, no matter what they're doing. You know, I, I've met you, I met Mav, I met Danny, by serving you guys one. Right? And I'm not in the same field as you guys. But it's like, one thing we share is like, whatever we're doing, like, we're trying to like crush it. You know what Absolutely. I mean? And to me, it's like, that's the kind of people you want to surround yourself with and, and, and culture that uh, create that energy. Absolutely. Culture, man, I know you're super busy, man. I, I so appreciate you doing this. As usual, anytime I call on you, the answer is always yes. And I love that's you for it. that. Um, I look forward to us being able to do this in person, hopefully very soon, man. Shit. I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dying, dude. We're due. We're due. We got to figure out this winter. We got to figure out Aspen, a, a COVID socially distanced safe way to, to get together and enjoy We're going to be toasting burgundy in the bubble or something. I mean, because I, <laughs> I, I can't live like this. Oh, man. Carlton, I appreciate you, man, as always. Thanks for the time. And um, like I said, I look forward to doing this in person. Cool. Peace. Right, Peace.